Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Recently, uh, I was in a conversation with a, with a pastor friend of mine. I'm seeking some advice from him, and I, I'm asking him, how do I help people try to figure out what God might be up to in their lives? Because I feel like that's part of what we do as pastors. We recognize how God's working in our own life. And then we, we try to come alongside everybody else and try to help uh, each other recognize how might God be working in your life. And, and the advice that I got uh, was basically this. He said, I always start by asking them this question. How are you suffering right now? What's difficult or painful that you're walking through right now? Because at the heart of this question is something that we all wonder which is where is God when we suffer? Where is God when evil is surrounding us? Why is it so much harder to trust God when things don't go as they plan? And why do we tend to forget about God when everything seems to go right? And yet through, through suffering and through questioning, there's things that we can learn about the Lord. There's a deepening of relationship with him that, that happens. That's why this question of how are you suffering right now is, is engaging and helpful because it takes this place where we might feel the most frustration or anger or loneliness and it says let's bring this most vulnerable area to the Lord and let's engage it with him. And in many ways, this is what the book of Habakkuk wrestles with and that's where we're going to be for the next three weeks. We're going to look deeply at this book together and ask the question, where is God when evil prevails? And Habakkuk, is a, he's a prophet during the Old Testament times, but he's different than a lot of the prophets we read in the Bible because he doesn't just go to the people of Israel and then say, hear the word of the Lord. He actually goes to God and he's got some questions about Israel, right? He, 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 uh, he's living in a time period where Israel's living incredibly sinful and wicked lives. And Habakkuk goes to God, he wants to know, God, are you going to do anything about this? What are you going to do? He's prophesying somewhere near uh, the end of the reign of King Josiah, around 609 BC. And in order for us to understand where Habakkuk's coming from, why this weighs on him so heavily, we first have to understand what's happening in Israel at this time. To do that, we're going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 22 and chapter 23. See, the book of Kings tells us about the rulers and the kings over Israel and how they ruled. And I'm going to save you a lot of time uh, this morning, summarize and say, it's not great. Okay, it doesn't go super well. Most of the time it's like, hey, uh, whichever king was king over Israel and uh, they ruled for however long and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how it goes for most of the book, for many of these kings. Uh, but when we get to King Josiah in chapter 22, hear what it says about him. It says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So somehow, in the midst of evil king after evil king after evil king, King Josiah decides to live righteously inside of the Lord. In fact, a couple of verses later, it tells us that he's actually having the temple repaired. And it's while they're repairing the temple that the high priest finds the book of the law which would be the, the Mosaic Law. So think uh, Ten Commandments, first five books of the Old Testament. Yeah, this, was, this was found by the high priest, which means that Israel had lost it. Right there, so far in sin, the priest doesn't know where his Bible is. Right, that's where we're at with Israel right now. And, and he gives it to the secretary who reads it to King Josiah. And Josiah's response in 2 Kings 22, verse 13, he says, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. 
For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Josiah recognizes that his people have been living wickedly and in the rest of that chapter, it's gonna walk through all the reforms that King Josiah makes throughout his reign as king. And when it does that, it's not just highlighting Josiah's righteousness, it's actually highlighting Israel's sinfulness. Okay, so we're going to look really quickly at chapter 23 and point out a couple of things that Josiah does as king that show us how Israel was not following the Lord. So 2 Kings 23, Israel had seemed to have set up a countless number of idols and altars and high places, which would be places of worship to uh, the gods Baal and Asherah and Molech, as well as engaging in the worship of what, what Scripture calls the hosts of heaven, meaning the sun, the stars, the moon. The priests and, and common people alike are engaging in this kind of worship, which involved uh, sacred prostitution, infant sacrifice, dedication of, of animals to the sun, and that's just to name a few. And so in chapter 23, King Josiah goes through and he breaks all the places of worship and defiles them. And then he burns all of the idols. And then he disposes of the priests that were involved and he attempts to cleanse Israel of their unrighteousness. And 2 Kings 23, 25 says about King Josiah, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses nor did any king like him arise after. However, immediately following this praise of King Josiah, 2 Kings tells us that, that the Lord's anger was not satisfied, that he's still going to punish Judah. And to make things worse, King Josiah dies shortly after the reform, and his son Jehoahaz takes his place, and guess what? He does what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and now Israel's right back to where we started. Let's take a breath. <laughs> All right. That's what we're walking into in the book of Habakkuk. He is tired of the evil in Israel. He longs for God's righteousness to be done. He saw a glimpse of it under King Josiah, and now Israel, pagan practicing, cult prostituting, infant sacrificing, idol worshiping Israel. And so Habakkuk asked these questions, God, where are you? Where are you in our suffering? What's your plan? For those who do evil, are you, are you going to do anything to help us? God, what about the righteous? And throughout our passage, there's a lot we could grab. There's a lot we could hold on to. But today what we're going to focus on is that God, in the midst of evil, God is faithful. And we'll specifically look at, at three ways in which God is faithful. God is faithful in relationship. God is faithful in retribution. And God is faithful in response. So let's read Habakkuk chapter 1 together through chapter 2, verse 1, uh, and then we'll dive in. It says this, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and so justice goes forth perverted. And God's response, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. 
They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward, and they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. And Habakkuk again, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he, the, the wicked one, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net, gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. And therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing, mercilessly killing nations forever? And I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're so grateful for your word. Lord, I pray now uh, that you would give us wisdom as we seek to understand it. God, encourage as we, as we try to apply it to our lives. Be with us now. In your name we pray, amen. So in the midst of evil, God is faithful in relationship. To be faithful is, is to be in a constant state of, of loyalty and steadfastness. It's a character trait that is earned over time. It's not a title you get after one decision or a specific action. It's something about you that's developed over time. And if you're married, then this is a concept that you likely understand well. To be faithful in your marriage is not to fall asleep at the wheel and then hope everything turned out all right. To act faithfully in your marriage takes effort. It causes you to, to live proactively, uh, constantly. It calls you to live in a way where in everything you do, you're seeking the glory of God and the benefit of your spouse. It's this constant state of being loyal. It's not just a here and there choice to be loyal, but, and it's definitely more than just not being unfaithful. No, to, to be faithful is to be, it's to be proactive and to be in a state of steadfastness towards your spouse. And as we read scripture, specifically this chapter of Habakkuk, God's faithfulness in relationship is constantly highlighted. In fact, it's, it's very rare that mankind's faithfulness to God is the point of any story, but rather scripture focuses on God's faithfulness to us, knowing that we fall short and we get distracted, and we mess up. But God, on the other hand, is a constant state of loyalty and steadfastness. No matter the circumstance or the issue at hand, he can be depended upon and trusted to do what is right and what is best in his relationship with us. And we see this in the beginning of Habakkuk so clearly. Israel's filled with wickedness. And God doesn't just run out on them. He's angry with them, but he doesn't forsake them. And Habakkuk knows that God is faithful in relationship, that he's steadfast and constant. And we see this in three ways that I want to point out for us quickly. Number one, he, he keeps his promises. Habakkuk actually begins his complaint to God by calling him, him Lord or Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God in the Bible. Meaning Habakkuk begins his complaint by reminding God we're in a covenant relationship with one another. 
And Habakkuk's basically begging God to, to keep his side of the promise, to keep his side of the covenant. But he's asking him to keep his side of the promise not by showing Israel mercy or by giving them things. He's asking God to keep his side of the promise by pouring out his justice on the people of Israel. Right? Habakkuk says, God, how long do I have to cry out to you? Why do you force me to witness sin and violence and wickedness? And why won't you do anything about it? In fact, in verse 4, Habakkuk basically says, God, because you're not acting, right, the law is paralyzed. It's lost its power. It's lost its ability. And justice can't be served. So what we're living under now is this twisted form of justice. He longs for God to do what is right in the covenant to purify his people, which in this relationship is done by bringing about justice. See, Habakkuk knows that the Lord is faithful, that he can be depended upon, and so he's asking him to act in that way. And it's in God's response in verse 5 that we see he's actually already answering Habakkuk's prayers. God says he's raising up the Babylonians to punish Israel. God has not forgotten about his people. And actually, his punishment of them or his promise of punishment of them is a sign of his faithfulness. He will keep his promise to punish Judah. And it's here that we can find comfort with the Lord as well, knowing that God keeps his promises. That even when we can't see it or we might not understand it, we serve a God who keeps his promises. The second way in which God is faithful in relationship is that he values us individually. Not only does he keep his promises, but he actually wants to know you as an individual. And he longs for you to seek him out. This is the great wonder and mystery of Christianity. That the God who created the entire earth and now controls everything in it wants to hear from you. That, that, that this is the confidence that we have as Christians. That God longs to know you, to listen to you, to care for you, to, to, to hear from you. He's not unapproachable. He's not unappeasable. He's not unpredictable. He didn't just set up the world and then turn his back Right? Nor does he make a promise and then force us to wait until it's complete before we have a relationship. No, he's actually engaged with you in relationship right now. And we see that in the way that Habakkuk approaches God. Right? Habakkuk knows that God is perfect. He knows that God is just. He knows that God is pure. But listen, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, well, I know all these things about God. Right? That's theology. No, his theology doesn't take the place of his relationship with God. His theology drives him into a deeper relationship with God to approach God with humility and reverence and with a burden say, Lord, where are you? His question isn't, God, do you care? It's, God, I know you care. Why aren't you doing anything? It's, God, I know you hate injustice. What's your plan here? Right? It's, it's God, are you going to do something? Because I, I know a little bit about you. It really feels like you should do something. Right? And God responds in a way that shows us and shows Habakkuk that, that he values that relationship with him. That doesn't mean that God gave Habakkuk everything he wanted to hear, but he hears his cry, right, and he responds, and he actually tells Habakkuk his plan. And the third reason why God is faithful in relationship is that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And of course, we get that from Hebrews chapter 13, but can you imagine how difficult it would be to serve a God who was always changing? I mean, some of you actually know people like this. They're impossible to please because their criteria for you is always changing, don't say this, laugh at that, don't laugh at that, how dare you fill in the blank, right? It is exhausting to try and please somebody who might change at the sudden drop of a hat. But God is not like that. He never changes. In the book of James, we see there's not even a variation or a shadow. He's completely constant and completely steadfast and fully himself. And in a relationship, this is incredible. I mean, you can count on the fact that every time you go to God, he's the same. 
that he's got the same standards, the same values, the same desires, and the same character every time you interact with him. There's a confidence and a safety in approaching a God that's constant. You know what to expect from him. And there's an environment created where you can go to him, like Habakkuk, and approach him because he never changes. So where is God when evil dominates the world around you? Where is God when when the wicked seem to triumph? Well, to start, our God is faithful in relationship. But he's also faithful in retribution. Now, there's a word we don't hear associated with God every Sunday, right? Retribution is defined as punishment inflicted on someone as vengeance for a wrongdoing. And yes, our God is faithful in retribution. He will be sure to deliver punishment and inflict it upon those who deserve it. After all, this is part of Habakkuk's complaint, right? Verse three, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? God, why don't you do something? Verse four again, God, because you're not doing anything, justice can't be brought about. God's people have turned to evil ways and Habakkuk is asking God to bring retribution, to inflict punishment upon his people for their wrongdoing. And here's what we can miss sometimes, which is the heart behind God's punishment. The heart behind it, it's not cruel. It's not that he, that he wishes them the worst. It's not that he wants to send them to hell. No, the heart behind the punishment is that he longs to purify and save his people. And if you're a parent, then, then this is something you probably understand, right? Why do, why do you discipline or punish your children? Ultimately, the reason behind punishment is that a child would grow from that experience. Maybe not ga- engage in a bad behavior anymore or maybe begin to engage in a good behavior. Right? But the goal of the punishment is not to be cruel for no reason. It's to benefit the child, to help them and teach them and mature them by helping them see the negative side of their actions and choices. And it's similar when God chooses to punish his people. His purpose for punishing Israel is that they might turn away from their wicked ways and turn back to following him. He's given Israel chance after chance after chance. And Habakkuk's now saying, God, if you don't do something, the wicked are going to prevail. And so we must remember that God punishing wrongdoing is a key part of his character. His actions and his words declare to us that sin must be punished. It's obvious that God hates sin. In our passage, Habakkuk points out in verse 13 that God can't even look at sin. He's so pure. It's completely against his nature, and this is a good thing, right? If God is truly good, then of course it would make sense that he hates all things that are evil. Now hear me on this. God is not complacent or okay with sin. He doesn't just put up with it or simply just allow it to exist and, and turn away from it. No, he, he hates it. And he will pour out his wrath and his judgment upon it. And for Christians, there's comfort in that fact. We, like, like Habakkuk, can look at the world around us. We can see the evil and the sin that our culture engages in, and we can trust that God is going to deal with all people in his time, but that's next week. And so I, as much as I would love to go into that, I've got to let Derek bring that to you next week because the retribution that we read about in chapter one is not for the people out there. It's for God's people. And this is where we begin to get unsure about God's hatred of sin. See, I think we like that part of God when it involves God fighting for us or God crushing our enemies. We like God's punishment and hatred of sin when we talk about the world out there. But guys, Habakkuk is longing for God's punishment uh, of sin right here amongst God's own people. And listen, I, I don't think that the nation of Israel just woke up one day and there were like shrines and, and temples and, and sacrifices to all these other gods and somebody was like, man, we look really sinful today. I, I don't think that that's how it happened. 
I think Israel got to where they did by asking some of the same questions that we ask today in our faith. Maybe even some of the same questions that the serpent asked Eve in the garden. Right? Did God really say? Does God really mean I can't? Does it actually matter? It's just a small lie. I mean, this sin's not affecting anyone else. Surely God didn't mean he wants me to stop. You could fill in the blank. I think these are the types of questions that we ask ourselves often, right? How can I make following Jesus fit in with what I'm already doing? And when you follow God like that, you are sure to end up like Israel, full of idols, full of sin and wickedness. And that's not even the worst part. You see, many of us get there to a place where we call ourselves God's people and yet our life is full of idols, like Israel. But then even more so like Israel, we do nothing to remove those idols from our lives. For some of us, it's been so long since we've heard or listened to God's voice that we actually have a hard time recognizing the idols are even there. They're just a part of life now. I mean, it's materialism or sexuality, marginalizing the less fortunate. Some of those things just become a part of how you live life. And still others of you, you know that the idols are there, but if we're being really honest, you just don't care. Like Israel, it might just might not really bother you that you're there. In fact, they probably make life a little bit easier for you, or they make it more fun. At the very least, they help you fit in with the world around us, and that's easier than being different. So yeah, I got, there's some idols. There's some practices in my life that aren't godly, but it's, it's going to be okay, right? God's a God of grace. But that's the danger that we fall into as God's people. It happened with Israel, and it happens with us today. We forget how much God hates evil, and we rarely hate the evil in our lives as God does. I mean, you might hate the evil that's done to you, but do you hate the evil that you've done to others? Do you despise the way that you've given your heart over to something other than God? Are you willing to, to hate and then to turn from the way in which money's completely rip your attention away from God? Can you feel angered in the way in which the, this world's promise of fulfillment has stolen you away from the source of true fulfillment? Do you hate the evil in your life? And what does this have to do with retribution? Anyways, well, in verses 5 to 11, God tells us his master plan for Israel, raising up the Babylonians to conquer Judah, a nation known for their violence and wickedness and ability to conquer any city. And God's going to use them as punishment for Israel. In fact, God himself talks about how feared the Babylonians are. But he doesn't do this because he's enamored with them. He, he, in fact, the way God talks about them, we know he doesn't approve of them. But he talks about them to explain how brutal the punishment is going to be for Israel. Right? God's telling Habakkuk, look, I agree with you. My people deserve to be punished, and here's what it's going to look like. So verse 7, uh, talking about the Babylonians. They are dreaded and fearsome, and their justice and dignity comes from themselves. Right? They follow no other rules besides what they decide is right and true. Verse 8, they've got the fastest horses and the fiercest horsemen who travel from far away just to devour those in their path. Guys, so far, the judgment's going to be dreadful and fearful and fast and fierce. Verse nine, they come for violence, right? God's like, make no mistake. They gather up the ones they conquer like sand and their intention is violence. Verse 10, they laugh at kings and fortresses because they take whatever's in their path. Hasn't been a city that can stop them yet. Verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and then they move on. And then they worship their own, their own strength. Their God is their own strength. Not the kind of people that you want to be enemies of. It doesn't sound like a good time. Yet this is God's chosen agent to carry out his purposes and his judgment of Israel, not because he approves of the Babylonians. That's not the point. 
The point is that he's chosen them because he hates the sin of Israel and he longs for his people to see their need of him and to turn and follow him again. He's willing to give his people over to such a violent nation and eventually into exile because he cares so much more about their holiness and their relationship with him than he does about their earthly status. He will do what it takes to catch their attention and purify their hearts. God is faithful in retribution so you can be comforted that evil will be punished. But you're also challenged to examine yourself and to eradicate evil from your life, to hate sin as God hates sin. For he cares much more about your spiritual heart condition than he does about your earthly status. Well, Habakkuk's understandably troubled by God's response, right? I mean, why though, really? I mean, God's answering his prayers, right? Just not the way that Habakkuk imagined it. His responses in verse 12 to 16 show us he's questioning God's decisions. I imagine he was a little bit like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. I didn't mean for you to use the bat. Have you heard what they do to people? Like this isn't, God, that's what's going on here, right? And so this brings us to our final point this morning, which is that God is faithful in response. So we'll look at uh, verses 12 to, to two, chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 1, at Habakkuk's complaint to God. Verse 12, right, Habakkuk says, you are the eternal God, right? We're your people. You're not going to let us die. Oh, but you have selected them as your agent of judgment. Verse 13, you're holy, God. You won't even look at sin. And yet Babylon's going to destroy a country that's far more righteous than them, and you're going to do nothing about it? Verse 14, right, God, by doing nothing, you're making us like crawling animals, with no sense of justice. In verse 15, Babylon is going to drag us out like fish from the sea with hooks in us, right? In verse 16, their own strength, right? Their net is their God. They worship themselves. Their own power and might brought them this luxurious life because you, God, aren't doing anything. In verse 17, what would ever stop them? God, if you don't step in, who's going to stop them? Are you going to let them conquer the entire world? And then he turns and he says, all right, I'll wait to hear what you have to say. I say, God, I know you're faithful. What are you going to have to say to my complaint? So as as we close, one one thing to note, and then three quick ideas about God's response to us in prayer. First, we note that Habakkuk's biggest wrestling point seems to be God doing nothing through Babylon's conquest of surrounding nations. But what God is going to tell Habakkuk, and what we can see now centuries later, is that he actually is working. It's not that God is, is doing nothing. It's actually that he is the one deciding which nations prevail and which ones lose. It's not random at all. He's not being idle. He's in control of all things and has the final say. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. So God is the one who raises up kings and defeats them. God alone is pulling the strings behind the realities of our world. And do not be convinced for a second that God is absent from this part of our world today. He is involved right now in setting up the world exactly as he wants it for his purpose. And you might not understand it. You might not feel like he's there. But he alone has the power to give rise and fall to nations. So three, three quick things about God's response to Habakkuk uh, and how he responds to us. The first God is not a genie here to fulfill our own wishes. As we see throughout the chapter, he has a plan already to carry out his purposes. And while we, like Habakkuk, have great freedom to approach God and to trust him and to talk with him, we must remember that he is God. And he very well may do things differently than we would. And so instead of trying to convince God of your plan, seek to understand his. That's what Habakkuk does in chapter 2, verse 1. 
where he, he, he voices a complaint and then he says, I'll wait to see what you have to say. I'll wait. Second, while, while we wait for God's response, we take comfort in the fact that he's faithful in relationship and faithful in retribution. In other words, just because you feel like God isn't answering you doesn't mean that, that he's changed or that he's not acting, right? He, he's the same always. And there's great comfort in that. As you wait for his response, remember that, that he alone is in control of everything. That, that he is a God most faithful, even if we cannot see or understand what his plans or purposes might be, he is faithful to respond. And third, God being faithful to respond is an open invitation to come to him. If he didn't want to hear from you, he would make it clear. But rather, he's made it abundantly clear that he longs for you to come and know him, that he wants to know you, that he wants to hear from you, and that he will answer you. So why not come to him? No matter what circumstances you're in, no matter how dark it looks, no matter what you've done or what, what's been done to you, no matter what, what burden you carry or, or what's grieving your heart, there's no better place to take it than to the Lord. An old hymn says it like this. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit and what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And so we see from Habakkuk that even in the midst of great evil, God is faithful. That even in the chaos of the world and the sin and the violence and the wickedness that surrounds us, he is faithful. Despite your plans and your understanding of the world, he is faithful. In the midst of whatever season you're walking through, what you're struggling through, God is faithful. He is steadfast and constant. And he longs to know you and for you to know and follow him. He is faithful in relationship. He is faithful in retribution. He is faithful in response. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.